America, other Western nations, and the rest of the free world face our biggest challenge since World War II. War has never left America. This is an unforgettable reality since World War II, with hundreds of thousands of young American troops forever lost on foreign soil. The Korean War, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. The fallen never made their way back. But America's sorrows have just begun. It's 2022, the world has entered a post-pandemic era. Much has been said about the way COVID-19 has already changed our lives. This global pandemic has wreaked havoc on America and the world. We're now trying to get our lives back to normal. But ahead of us, warnings. Anger, frustration, outrage growing in Shanghai and China, a city of 25 million people been locked up in their homes. We saw the aftermath of this global pandemic. It was like a post-apocalyptic scene. And with the virus making a comeback to China, the chaos, the violence, renewed. This time, it's not just the surge in COVID. Disasters, both natural and man-made, are ravaging the country. Two years ago, our investigative team at the Epic Times made the documentary tracking down the origins of the Wuhan coronavirus. It was a runaway hit, garnering close to 100 million views. In the film, we exposed two key issues. The Chinese communist regime covered up the science of the origins of the pandemic. The research conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology also proved suspicious. So do its lax biosafety measures. The film was immediately censored by Facebook's alleged fact checkers. Weirdly enough, the first fact checker was a former employee at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But how long will the truth stay hidden? Over the past two years, the Wuhan lab has come under scrutiny as more and more problems at the lab, including what we reported, continue to be exposed. You know, the lab leak hypothesis does require investigation. China has engaged systematic cover-up. Seeing these facts come to light, I still have too many questions unanswered. 
What game is Beijing playing the Taiwan Strait? With China supporting Russia and the Taliban, what does it want in return? At the height of these global crises, why is the CCP expanding its military and aggressively preparing for war? Why would the regime's top think tanks repeatedly mention the Third World War in public? Is this just a global public health crisis? When it comes to the CCP, the probe into how the pandemic began is just the tip of the iceberg. With the help of many CCP insiders, our investigation uncovered a shocking truth behind the origins of the coronavirus. The story goes back to the beginning of the Chinese Communist Party and its 100-year plot against the U.S. What comes is a chilling realization. The Chinese Communist leadership has consistently advanced its agenda. And today, it is no longer far from achieving its ultimate goal. What would this look like for America? If the CCP wants the death of America, where we are strangers to our own destiny. The American people are standing on the edge of a cliff. I'm a father. Like every dad, I want to see my kids grow and prosper. And I'm afraid for their future. I want to alert the world to China's stealth war. It's a terrifying message. If you remember back in World War II, there was an evil axis with Nazi Germany and other evil countries. Well, there's an evil axis today. You've got the Chinese Communist Party. You've got Russia. You've got Iran. You've got North Korea. They're selling each other military equipment, military espionage, military training, military this, military exercises, intelligence, and so on. So they're allied to where it makes sense for them. As long as it serves to defeat the free world, they're in. A superpower war would be a type of conflict we haven't seen since the Second World War. Should President Biden confront the aggressive actions of Beijing? Chinese military has become noticeably more aggressive. How volatile does that make the region? The world has become a much different place after the pandemic. We find ourselves caught in the shifting sands of political upheaval, reeling from one geopolitical crisis to the next. Be it the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or the current tensions at the Taiwan Strait, America is scrambling to catch up. At home, life has never gone back to the way it was. Main story this week, as it concerns a topic. With soaring prices and inflation overwhelming the country, it's hard to see hope in the near future, where our very livelihoods are now at stake. The question on everyone's mind, are we headed for a recession? Now the United States might react if China were to invade Taiwan. Warning for the United States. 
Every morning I wake up, I'm worried about the safety and future of my family. What's really set American nerves on the edge is the revelation that these crises in the wake of the pandemic have the CCP written all over it. We've seen the regime's fingerprints all over the place. But what is the plan behind the scenes? What is their ultimate goal? And just how far is the CCP willing to go? The most dangerous area in today's U.S.-China Cold War is this part of the Indo-Pacific, Taiwan, and the South China Sea. A place where the CCP is determined to take over one day. The strategically critical area is also where the U.S.-China conflict is most visibly escalating. Conflicts in this region have only gotten worse with the U.S.-China trade war, and especially after the pandemic. To understand the CCP's strategic ambition for the world order, you first have to understand Taiwan and the South China Sea. Taiwan is more than just a U.S. ally. Given its strategic importance to the U.S., what would a Chinese takeover of Taiwan mean to us? Is Taiwan simply about China's domestic affairs, or as the CCP calls it, a reunification issue? China is ramping up its retaliation. China with a warning for the United States. In August 2022, in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, the Chinese regime held a major military drill surrounding the island, simulating a blockade. Days after the drills, in Beijing's new white paper titled The Taiwan Question and China's Reunification in the New Era, the regime refused to rule out force in its bid to take over the island. But how? Given its recent drills, Beijing is letting on two scenarios to take over Taiwan in an all-out war, or to blockade the island, forcing its leaders into submission. Xi Jinping right now has the incentives to do something that would take us by surprise. If they need to do so with war, they're going to do that. It has been slow on behalf of Americans to recognize that. We shouldn't view Taiwan as the CCP's ultimate goal, but as the first domino in a quest to reach regional and global dominance. If Taiwan falls, it will not be the end, but rather a beginning. The problem is this, the island's location. Taiwan sits at a pivotal point in the first island chain that the U.S. sees as its line of defense to prevent the CCP's naval expansion into the Pacific. If Taiwan is lost to China, it will be much harder for the U.S. to protect other First Island nations, like Japan and South Korea. And U.S. military bases there will also be in peril. What's worse, a Chinese military base in Taiwan could well threaten the second island chain, including Guam. At that time, the security of the Philippines and even Australia would be on the line. 
But there's another level of strategic threat hitting closer to home. The deep water ports on the east coast of Taiwan. The CCP's ticket to the Pacific. From there, Chinese nuclear submarines could freely enter the Pacific Ocean without being detected by U.S. forces. Every island in the Pacific, Hawaii, and even the U.S. West Coast would be threatened or even raided by a CCP nuclear submarine. I would say uh, they feel more confident. This all because they sense their time is, has come and they, were, they can afford being more aggressive and the Western democracies couldn't do as much as we want to. In the context of the escalating U.S.-China Cold War, Taiwan is no longer just an issue of cross-strait relations. It has become the front line of the U.S.-China Cold War. The security of Taiwan is the security of Asia. And the security of Asia is related to the security of the world. What is the CCP doing to prepare itself to become the world's dominant power? How serious is the military threat posed by the CCP to the United States? This is a battle most Americans never saw coming. China is increasing its nuclear arsenal at a much faster rate than the U.S. anticipated. There's new concern tonight about China's military capabilities. Bottom line, all this essentially means China is close to being able to launch a nuclear warhead against any other nation without any warning. A recent Pentagon report warns China could have 1,000 nuclear warheads by 2030. Clearly, the Pentagon has been shaken by the advances that the Chinese military has made. Meanwhile, the Chinese regime is developing hypersonic glide missiles. China's apparent hypersonic glide weapons test, in theory, could be capable of carrying a nuclear warhead that the U.S. can't see or defeat. Go into space. U.S. military officials admit that the U.S. lags behind China in its hypersonic weapons. It is very concerning. Uh, I think I saw in some of the newspapers they, they use the term Sputnik moment. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. I mean, basically the general saying, we're not ready for this. Mm -hmm. We're not ready for this. It has the potential of changing the the balance of power between Mm -hmm. the United States and China. John Hyten, the number two person in the U.S. military and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also issued a warning in an interview with CBS. Hyten believes the Chinese are developing the capability to launch a surprise nuclear attack on the U.S. Why are they building all of this capability? They look like a first-use weapon. Because of Earth. Control of Earth. This is the most ambitious regime in history. On one side, growing military threats to the U.S. On the other, the CCP strengthening new alliances as the world drifts closer to war. Bloodshed and terror continue. Ukrainians are fleeing by the tens of thousands. (laughs) 
Russia's invasion of its neighboring country is bringing out a sea of change in the world order. It's no longer a secret that Russia's relation with the CCP is getting closer than ever. On the eve of Russia's invasion, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a series of agreements in Beijing, promising cooperation with no limits between the two countries. The Chinese are puppeteers. They're puppeteers of governments. They're puppeteers of Russia. I know that Vladimir wouldn't want to admit to that, but that's exactly what's happening, both indirectly and directly. And ultimately, the result of that is that the CCP has greater sway over a far larger number of governments around the world than the Soviets ever had. The Chinese Communist Party's reason for being is to accumulate power. Every day it must accumulate more power. Its agenda for accumulating that power is to reorder power relationships all around the world so that they all benefit the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to remain in power. Work together to face the risks and challenges facing mankind, realizing win-win cooperation and development together. It's not surprising the Chinese Communist regime has joined forces with Russia. The world is again breaking into two competing blocks. A new axis is on the horizon. But as we saw in the summer of 2021, when Afghanistan fell, we know that Russia is far from the CCP's only ally in its dangerous game. On August 15th, 2021, as the world was focused on investigating the virus origins and all eyes were on the Chinese regime, an incident suddenly shifted our attention. In Afghanistan, the Taliban terrorist organization took advantage of the withdrawal of U.S. troops and with lightning speed took over the country. In a matter of days, the U.S.-backed Afghan government collapsed. The mass exodus of hundreds of thousands of people. The bloodshed, gunfire, panic and chaos gripped the country. And terror again shook the world. As it stands this hour, Taliban fighters surround the capital, Kabul. The Pentagon now confirms a number of United States troops were killed. The unexpected casualties of U.S. troops and the Taliban's tough stance brought us back to September 11th, one of the darkest days in American history. A plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. America is under attack. Like 20 years ago, the chilling impact of a new crisis is looming over America. What role did the Chinese regime play in this takeover? Some recent interactions between the CCP, the Taliban, and the U.S. may offer some clues. Our military mission in Afghanistan will conclude on August 31st. On July 8th, the same day that Biden announced the deadline to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, the Taliban made a clear gesture of goodwill to Beijing. 
Despite their past support for Uyghur militants in Xinjiang, they reassured the CCP that they would not interfere in China's internal affairs. Two days later, on July 28th, in a meeting even more high-profile than the U.S.-China talks, the CCP's foreign minister, Wang Yi, met with the Taliban's de facto leader, Mullah Baradar. The meeting, unprecedented in its publicity, signaled warming ties between the two countries and was seen by many as a gift from Beijing for the Taliban's future legitimacy. Since August, articles whitewashing the Taliban splashed on the front pages of Chinese media and social media. Almost simultaneously, People's Daily published a series of 18 articles attacking the U.S. Xinhua News Agency, CCTV, and other party-controlled media also joined the anti-U.S. chorus. Nothing of this magnitude has been seen in the entire 42 years since the U.S. and China established diplomatic relations. On September 2nd, Taliban spokesman Zabiullah Mujahid told Italian newspaper La Repubblica that, quote, China is our most important partner. Because right now we know that in Kabul, you've got members of the Pakistani Intelligence Service, the ISI, and the People's Republic of China, and they're collecting up U.S. gear moving it across the PAC border, and they're going to export it for exploitation to the PRC. There's another thing. Everybody keeps talking nowadays about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Haqqani and ISIS all being different. They're not. The PRC is very powerful. We know that there's connections. Never underestimate the power of blackmail. Why would the CCP insist on siding with terrorists? This question weighed on me. Among Beijing's highest-ranking strategists, Jin Sanrong may hold the key to part of the story. Jin is a professor and vice dean of the School of International Relations at Renmin University in China. He is an expert on U.S. affairs and is considered one of the top strategists who has the most sway over CCP leader Xi Jinping. In July 2016, Jin made a long speech at the U.S.-China Strategic Philosophy Symposium. At the center of his speech was the CCP's agenda against America. Of course, we could have other evil tactics, such as furthering the chaos of the world. But the problem with the United States is that it is truly diverse. Among Western countries, the U.S. enjoys the highest degree of democracy. Of course, diversity has one advantage. The people have freedom such as freedom of speech. But it comes with disadvantages, too. It's very difficult for the people to come to a consensus. The best scenario for the U.S. is that it has a very clear external enemy. If there are two enemies, the United States will lose its focus. This was the situation before World War II. There were two enemies, one Nazi Germany and the other the Red Scare, the Soviet Union. Because of that, the U.S. started fighting internally, even before the war began. Now, if there were three external enemies for the U.S., you could see how that would be a mess, let alone four. So China's strategic goal is to make sure that the U.S. has four enemies, and one of them must be a terrorist group. Russia is like one, 
but it's not enough. In Jin's words, the Chinese regime wants to create multiple enemies for America, and in so doing, distract our country and have our hands full. If terrorism is our biggest enemy, the CCP has every reason to raise a tiger against the U.S. According to Vision Times, Chinese dissident and professor Yuan Hongbing revealed that the CCP had set up a camp in western China's Hushi Corridor to train guerrilla terrorists from Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries. Interestingly, the CCP appointed anti-terrorist officials to carry out the training of these terrorists. They only needed to spend 10,000 US dollars on training a guerrilla terrorist like the ones in the Middle East or Iraq. When these fighters return to the Middle East and Iraq, they inflict enormous military and economic losses and drain the national power of the United States. When you understand that, then you understand that all of the anger and really the hurt that has come from the destruction of America must be focused on the Chinese Communist Party and the people that work with the party to help them do that. It was very clear to me that this image that the American media had been portraying, which is that we were competitors with the CCP, was not true. The Communist Party of China is a threat to the United States. It's a threat to every country. It is a threat to the whole notion of civilization. Yes, the Chinese Communist Party has posed a threat, and that threat is a central threat of our times. China could no longer be treated as a regional threat. It's a global threat. Whoever the next president of the United States is, whether it's a second term for Biden or someone else on his side or a conservative, it's imperative that all Americans, regardless of who they vote for, recognize in those presidential debates, there needs to be violent agreement between the two major candidates for president that the greatest threat facing the United States is the CCP. They're not a strategic rival. They're not even an adversary. They're an enemy, and they must be defeated. In early 2020, when the virus started spreading from Wuhan, China, our investigation team saw a threat quietly approaching America and its allies. That threat came even earlier than the virus. As we tracked daily news, we saw a Chinese communist regime increasingly and unusually aggressive on multiple fronts. The aggression was military, diplomatic, and even reflected in domestic and foreign propaganda. But what rang the alarm bell for us was a concept that kept showing up in Chinese state media and public speeches of the party's high-level think tanks. This idea of World War III. I grew up in a small farming community and I thought I was going to be a farmer. And then when I was a senior in college, I saw this movie, Top Gun. 
and it really inspired me to go fly jets. So I joined the Air Force and I learned to fly the B-52 and the B-2 stealth bomber. During my career, I got to lead the 509th Operations Group that controls all the B-2s in the U.S. Air Force inventory. It was a tremendous honor. During that time, we had unprecedented success. We deployed a brand new communication system. We had successful missions in Libya to stop Libyan Air Force from bombing the Libyan people. These were things that I was tremendously proud of during my career. When I left the White House, I recognized that I needed to tell the story of what I'd learned over the last seven years. So I want to begin by asking uh, General Spaulding about the nature of our competition or conflict with China today. We, we talk about national security so much and it becomes about weapons. It's not about weapons. It's about our ability. I had been trained to fly the most expensive, sophisticated warplane in the history of mankind. And yet, I realized that that was not going to protect our country. And that's because that represents a different way of thinking about warfare. Credible threat. Tensions with China could lead to a deadly war. Party knows the benefits of throwing the red meat of nationalism to the crowd. A third world war. This is a new and concerning signal. A threat far more serious to our national security than that posed by the Taliban or even the pandemic. It would be understandable if the phrase is just a metaphor. If the Chinese regime is simply likening the degree of the pandemic's global damage to post-war trauma. But is there more to the story? When the crisis gets turned in favor of the CCP and its grand scheme to wage a new world war? What happens when the Chinese regime, in supporting terrorism, has its eyes on the U.S.? Are we becoming the target of this third world war? On March 16, 2020, when the pandemic started to take hold in the U.S. and Europe, Liu Hong, deputy editor-in-chief of Chinese magazine Globe, wrote an article titled, From Another Perspective, This is World War III. The article was then forwarded by nearly all Chinese mainstream media. Sina, Tencent, Phoenix, NetEase, Xinmin Weekly, among others. It's as if an invisible force was directing public opinion to focus on this article. The magazine is headed by Xinhua News Agency. Xinhua is the official channel of the CCP. Its reporting principles serve as guidance for other state outlets. Here's what the article says. War is all-encompassing. Doctors fighting the epidemic is a battle. Guaranteeing supplies is a battle. Home quarantine is also a battle. This is a medical war, a security war, but also a psychological war. Panic will result in the collapse of the Western stock market. At the end of the article, it says, 
War inevitably changes the world order. World War I and World War II have completely changed the international order and triggered innovations in technology and revolutions in society. The unconventional World War III will, with no doubt, have a similar profound impact on the scientific and technological revolution and the world order. This war concept came up more and more. On August 21st, 2020, Jin Sanrong, a top Chinese Communist Party strategist, made a speech in the Yangtze River Daily. In our international relations circle, we have defined it, the pandemic, as the first unconventional security world war of mankind. It has had a wide impact on the world economy and international politics. We will find that we are in a hundred years of unprecedented changes, in a hundred years of unprecedented opportunities. Everywhere is our opportunity. We should plan and then move. When it's time to strike, we must strike. Di Dongsheng is another strategist for top CCP officials. He unbashedly compared the pandemic to the battle for China's ascension to the center of the world stage. We know that the rise of great powers requires wars. This time it's reasonably China's turn. 100 years is normally a cycle. It's China's turn now. What is certain is that the U.S. has officially lost its global leadership this time. It's not hard to tell from the language of state media and CCP think tanks. World War III isn't just about the pandemic striking humanity. It's about transforming the world order, a reshuffling of the world's dominating powers in a path to global domination. Why does the CCP see this unprecedented global pandemic as an opportunity unseen in a century? What does an unconventional World War III really mean for the U.S. government and for Americans? Are we aware of this unconventional war at play? Are we prepared to deal with the Chinese communist threat? Danger and opportunity exist within the word in Chinese for crisis. For the Chinese Communist Party, the coronavirus was an opportunity to begin to learn how to control the world. China has again blamed the U.S. for its performance on pandemic control. The Wuhan virus gave China a good opportunity because it has been a devastating blow to major uh, countries of the world. That could potentially be China's obstacles to its supremacy and domination of the world have been really uh, affected in a very negative way by this uh, Chinese virus. The Chinese Communist Party launched this war against other democratic systems using the public health crisis as a tool, as a weapon. They play this invisible war, this unrestricted warfare to other countries while other people have no idea. They all think the Chinese government dealing with a public health crisis too. 
they didn't realize they are treated like a military operation. April 2020, the Chinese Communist Party International Department released a letter signed by 230 world communist parties, including the Communist Party USA, by the way. And one of the main th themes was, don't blame China, talk about how great China is in solving the problem. Yeah, we should be so grateful to China. And you know, China's socialized healthcare system is so great. They used the COVID to maximize the social and economic damage. And these messages were echoed by politicians here, by the news media here. Dozens of countries are looking to China to rescue them from the COVID-19 pandemic. Xie to the Chinese government and people. When they release the virus to the whole world, they immediately secure a lot of those uh, personal protective gears, right? Those are also some of the key biomedical raw materials. And these actual operations probably started many years ago. This pandemic has really illustrated the vulnerability of the United States. Made in China. It's a phrase that has become an almost daily reminder. Pro-Chinese communist unions were shutting the schools and keeping the businesses shut and exercising their influence on democratic governors and politicians to keep the blue states shut as long as they could. You look where China had the most influence. New York, Washington, California, Oregon and Hawaii and, and Boston, Massachusetts. That's where the Chinese communists have the most influence in America. And those were the states that shut down the worst and the longest because the Chinese wanted them shut down. The whole war is actually in war with the Chinese Communist Party because they don't care how many Chinese people die. They don't care how many other people in other countries die. They only care if they can win the battle, they can defeat other political systems, they can win this war. Even if it wasn't a biological weapon to start out with, Xi Jinping turned it into one. The entire strategy of the Chinese Communist Party during the coronavirus has been one, to hype fear of the coronavirus, and to use that fear to create doubt about democratic societies. The coronavirus is not a bio-war program. It's an information, it's a political, it's an influence war program. It's about using fear to create division in societies, to make the citizens of that society lose confidence in a democratic system. Then the propaganda you're hearing is that the United States is going out, out of business. Uh, the free world economy is going out of business. You know, we're the true world leader. We need to be doing this and, and taking over. We're the trusted leader. You can't believe a word that the, the Americans or the Australians or the Canadians and the, or the British say. So it's, you see all this propaganda coming up and this is straight out of the communist playbook. Beijing today announced that it has returned to zero new COVID cases. A 
According to the report titled, America Ranked First, the United States is well-deserved to be the world's number one anti-pandemic failure. First thing you need to achieve in your desiring to impose your will on another party is first you have to undermine their convictions and their self-confidence and their own uh, strength of will so that they are then vulnerable and open to new influences. We believe that it is important for the United States to change its own image and to stop advancing its own democracy. That led to the Chinese Communist Party to recalculate the international power balance, which obviously is uh, uh, manifested in Xi Jinping's uh, public pronouncements that somehow there is a trend called Dongsen Xijiang, that is, the East is rising, the West is declining, uh, by which he means that uh, China's time has come and the West is declining. Therefore, they become much more confident, they become much more aggressive, they become much more uh, belligerent. They've spent the last 40 years uh, basically figuring out how to build up the world's dominant military power. They want to be the dominant power because they view the United States and the democracies, including Taiwan, Japan, as the main threat. Yes, we're in World War III now. We just don't know it. And that's the worst possible position you can be in. When you're losing a war and you don't even know you're in it, it's hard to get worse than that. The goal and the objective uh, for this World War III scenario for the Chinese Communist Party is to defeat the democratic system improving to the Chinese population, moving to the world, that the China model works. The authoritarian communist style dictatorship work better than uh, democratic systems. And we are in a world war with the Chinese Communist Party without realizing it. Taliban, the pandemic, global dominance the footprints of the Chinese Communist regime's hidden agenda. As our investigation unfolds, a person close to the CCP's founder let us in on a secret. Since the very beginning of 1949, when the Communist Party took power, the CCP has been plotting to ultimately defeat the United States and dominate the world. In late 2014, when I was at the Pentagon, I received an email from a colleague who I'd met in New York City. 
In the email was a presentation developed by one of the top five audit firms. This presentation really showed a number of ways the Chinese Communist Party was attacking companies. I didn't stop feeling, you know, affection for the Chinese people or China, but I began to ask a question about the Chinese Communist Party because before that I had never really studied the party. And so I started to read everything I could. And as I read about the Chinese Communist Party constitution, about unrestricted warfare, about document number nine, about the Tiananmen Papers, about the Xinjiang Papers later that came out, I began to understand the Chinese Communist Party is separate and distinct from China and the Chinese people. And most importantly, it represents a grave danger to the American people. It was two years in the making. The United States and China have entered a deep downward spiral. Where did it all begin? If you go by the mainstream media, it was Xi Jinping and Trump who plunged relations to their lowest point. Was it really so? On the China side, are the CCP's recent aggressions a product of Xi's personality or part of a larger scheme? What is the Chinese regime's long-term strategy towards the United States? What's the root cause of this U.S.-China standoff? We have to get to the bottom of this. With the CCP insiders, we tracked down what really happened between the U.S. and China over the past decades. The rise and fall of U.S.-China relations. Behind this history, the Chinese Communist regime's 100-year agenda to defeat America. The Epic Times investigation team had studied the CCP for years. We thought we knew it inside out. But this time, what we uncovered was yielding evidence beyond our imagination. It would topple the entire knowledge system we had built around it, and most certainly shake the American people to the core. Our investigation begins from a confidant of Mao Zedong, founder of the Chinese Communist regime. Li Ray, born in 1917, was Mao's personal secretary in the 1950s. He was among the few more right-leaning communist revolutionaries. Li was thrown into prison by his party and spent eight years behind bars for his mild criticisms of the regime. Li's diary and meeting notes, currently held by the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, provide a rare peek into the discussions at key moments in CCP history. The meeting notes start from 1948, about a year before the Communist Party established its regime in mainland China. Li passed away in 2019. His daughter, Li Nanyang, who helped transcribe and annotate Li's writings, sat down with us. How would you explain this to people? After my father passed away, I started to organize his uh, meeting minutes. They always had the political study. That's a routine. 
uh, inside of the CCP, and the higher rank uh, officer always came over to talk about something. And my father uh, just recorded all this talk. And in this talk, I remembered uh, one uh, was from Yang Shangkun. Yang Shangkun, one of the most powerful early members of the CCP, fought for decades alongside Mao to create the regime. Yang directly oversaw the most important Communist Party affairs for two decades. In 1948, he was the party's top military leader. He said, sooner or later, we will liberate the entire China. Okay, and the next goal, we are going to defeat America. We work together with the Soviet Union. We become really strong. We have enough power to defeat the American and the West world and to liberate the entire world eventually. So I was really shocked even before they seized the power of China. They had such dream. When I tapped in, I, I thought it was a joke. I never thought it could become true. No. I was really surprised when I read the Wellbound's report. What Lee told us was shocking. It's hard to believe the CCP had such huge ambitions back in 1948. After all, the party was struggling to survive a civil war with the nationalists. It hadn't yet even taken over China. But after trolling through the CCP's internal policy records, we found that early on, when Mao first founded the communist regime, the party had laid down two basic strategic principles towards the United States. First, the United States is the ultimate enemy of the CCP. And defeating the United States is the only way for the party to achieve global domination. Second, defeating the United States is a long-term process and a protracted war. These strategic principles were hidden from the public. But we managed to find their traces in the internal party meeting records, policy documents, and Mao Zedong's own words. They were leading directly to this ultimate goal. In 1949, the year the CCP seized power in China, Liu Dingyi, then head of the central CCP propaganda department, wrote in an article, The day will come when all mankind will sing a song of triumph over the American imperialists. That's a fact-based scientific prediction. In Castaway Illusions, Prepare for Struggle, Mao says the slogan, Prepare for Struggle, is addressed to those who still cherish certain illusions about the relations between China and the imperialist countries, especially between China and the United States. And U.S. imperialism is a paper tiger, Mao says. When we say U.S. imperialism is a paper tiger, we are speaking in terms of strategy, and this tiger must die. We must continue to wage struggle against it fight it with all our might, and that takes time. 
The 100-year goal that the CCP has to become the world's leader, which of course starts with dominating the United States, is accelerating. So it's really important for Americans in particular to understand this is the plan. It has been being executed by the CCP for decades, and well-intentioned American presidents and other leaders have been duped by that. It is terrible that the CCP has gotten so far along in this 100-year plan, but they've gotten really close to succeeding. The agenda of the CCP, you have to understand, is the long game. They don't care if it takes 50 or 100 years to turn the world 100% communist under their control. So exactly when and how did the CCP's long game start? We need to go back to before the party was even ruling China. How jubilant was the taste of victory? The year was 1945. The world was celebrating the end of the Second World War. In China, the public was having warm feelings towards the United States like never before. In the hearts of the Chinese people, Americans fought for them. To the aid of China came volunteers from other lands. The memory was still fresh of a small group of American volunteer aviators, known as the Flying Tigers, who plummeted Japanese bombers to the earth in flames. The Japs that hoped to ride to world conquest on the back of the giant Chinese world. Though outnumbered by the Japanese, the Tigers never lost a single battle. During China's darkest moments in the war against the Japanese, these pilots were a symbol of heroism. As Time Magazine wrote, Flying Tigers swooped, let the Japanese have it. The CCP, relying on the US to be the peacemaker between the party and the ruling nationalists, spared no effort to take advantage of the pro-American sentiment. And in doing so, prevented its own destruction. On July 3rd, 1943, the day before America's Independence Day, CCP mouthpiece Xinhua Daily published an editorial in a tone that would shock most communists today. Since a young age, we have thought of the U.S. as a lovable country. The Chinese people hold good impressions of the U.S. based on the democratic and open-minded character of its people. Just a few years later, Chinese communist soldiers were killing American troops in the Korean War. It was June 1950. The CCP, having taken over mainland China, painted Americans as the most evil imperialists in the world. To eliminate pro-U.S. sentiment in China after World War II, the Communist Party launched a massive propaganda campaign, teaching the Chinese people to, quote, hate, despise, and look down on the United States. America went from a democratic, civilized, and friendly nation to the world's most counter-revolutionary, barbaric, and aggressive imperialist country, and the sworn enemy of 
the Chinese people. In less than a decade, the CCP waged another war against the U.S., this time through an agent, the Vietnam War, a bad dream for America that never goes away. Americans remember the anti-war campaign, but who was on the other side of the Vietnam War? The Vietnamese were just cannon fodder, and the Chinese Communist Party encouraged and supported the war. It was Mao Zedong who took 60% of China's revenue and forced the northern Vietnamese to fight the southern Vietnamese. And for what? To defeat American imperialism. The Chinese regime's long drawn out plans against America, an ultimate plan for world domination. This is nothing new to the U.S. intelligence community. In his 2014 book, The Hundred Year Marathon, former U.S. Defense Department senior official Michael Pillsbury revealed the following stories. In 1964, Soviet KGB spy Yuri Nisenko defected to the United States, bringing with him some of the most important intelligence about China. He reported that Mao sought dominance not only of the international communist system, but also of the entire world order. The real story was when I was 24 years old at the United Nations headquarters in the Secretariat, what the Russians there told me confirmed what Nosenko has said, but they went even further. They said China has a grand plan that first they've squeezed the Soviet Union of everything they could get in terms of technology and investment, factories and so forth. Now they're going to switch over to you Americans, but at the time nobody believed this uh, Russian warning. In 1969, 24-year-old Pillsbury was working as an intelligence officer for the U.S. government. He was able to get access to thousands of pages of internal documents from the Soviet Union. The Soviet view of China in their internal secret documents, the American government got onto only because of a high-level spy who had a Minox camera and took 10,000 pages of photos, which the CIA assembled into a series of documents. In that material was a lot of description of Chinese ambitions and goals. In 1969, the judgment was again confirmed personally to Pillsbury by Arkady Shevchenko, a then-Soviet Union official stationed in the United Nations. Shevchenko later became the highest-ranking Soviet diplomat to defect to the United States. He told Pillsbury the Soviet leadership hated and feared the Chinese, believing that China was planning to take control of the communist world and eventually assert global dominance. The Chinese Communist Party, by its nature, was pro-communist, pro-Stalinist, and pro-Soviet. But Mao Zedong wanted more than that. He had huge ambitions to dominate the world. 
and to be the leader of the world communist system. And he fell out with the Soviet Union when fighting for that leadership. After the battle, Soviet Russians considered launching nuclear strikes on major Chinese cities, including Beijing. Mao, by that time, through the ping-pong uh, diplomatic uh, policy, and opened the door to reach their hand to the America. And the American people thought, oh, and then Mao now want to be a friend. Beijing's olive branch to the United States was unprecedented. And it came at a good time. The U.S. government was busy containing threats from the Soviet Union. In comparison, threats from communist China seemed trivial. Upon learning a deep division was forming between the Soviets and the Chinese regime, the U.S. did not hesitate to send then-National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger on a secret trip to China. We seek an open world, a world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. Soon after, in 1972, President Nixon went on an official visit to China. His visit would fundamentally change the world order, where the United States and China became allies against the Soviet Union. We have unlocked the doors that for a quarter of a century stood between the United States and the People's Republic of China. And five years later, January 1st, 1979, the U.S. established diplomatic relations with the Chinese Communist regime. What Nixon did not realize was that he was setting the stage for a profound crisis one that could threaten the very foundations of America. The U.S. helped the CCP, and U.S. saved the CCP. At that time, Nixon made the decision to say that if the Soviet Union attacked China, the U.S. would have to step in and attack the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was forced to pull back. Then Mao Zedong realized that if he didn't ally with the U.S., he couldn't survive. He would be dead. So he was forced to be more pro-America. That's not the same as saying that he loved America in his heart, loved democracy. There was no such thing. The China card got the CCP what it wanted, a helping hand from the U.S. The only question is, would it stop Chinese leaders from seeing America as the ultimate enemy? That didn't happen. As Kissinger and Nixon were shaking hands with Mao Zedong, behind the scenes, the communist regime had a well-thought-out plan. Chinese-American author Jian Ying Jia recalled in an article 
The party meticulously tuned down the anti-U.S. propaganda during Nixon's week-long visit. But right after his departure, and even before Nixon's delegates had left China, CCTV was already airing anti-U.S. operas. Sifting through massive documents, we realized one thing. Be it Mao or successors to come, the CCP's hundred-year agenda has not changed since day one. To defeat the United States, become the world's top superpower, and establish a new world order dominated by the CCP by the 100th anniversary of the founding of the regime. Among the leaders after Mao, one man was arguably the most deceitful, Deng Xiaoping. After Mao died, the Cultural Revolution finished in China, economy just at the edge. Then Deng Xiaoping needs something to save the CCP. He decided to open the door economically and open the door to the West country. And he visited the US and by his cowboy's hat. And the people just thought he was different from them all. Chinese leave today with their memories and perhaps a new image for communist China's leading man. For Deng Xiaoping not only went west, but went western. In response to U.S. journalists, this is how Deng phrased U.S.-China relations. China is not important to the world because China is still very poor and has limited power. If we want to confront the Soviet Union, we have to depend on the United States. Deng's foreign policy in a nutshell, hide your strength and bide your time. For the American public, what they saw was an honest, low-key and practical leader a man who seemed to care more about the economy than political games. U.S. policymakers were thrilled at the idea that one day China would become a free market economy, or even better, a liberal democracy. America started sharing valuable resources with China. Technology, investment, education, military goods, and even intelligence. In the case of the media, from 1976 to 1997, when Deng passed away, he was featured at least seven times on the cover of Time magazine, fueled by America's excitement for this new Chinese leader. But America had no idea what it was about to encounter. On the surface, Deng did recognize the United States as the world's dominant power. 
Yet behind the veil of friendliness lied the CCP's staunch hostility, the rejection of American freedom from the very beginning. Anti-American propaganda was tuned down in China, but it never went away. Deng Xiaoping made it very, very clear. We would never follow the American way. No constitutional system. No political reform. For almost 20 years, the United States and China maintained a sort of peace, at least on the surface. That changed overnight with gunshots before dawn on June 4th, 1989, a day that shocked the world. A brutal massacre of Chinese students. The world is a much different place tonight. For the CCP, the Tiananmen Square massacre came at a heavy cost. It upended the honeymoon illusion that Deng had painstakingly weaved. And U.S.-China relations for the next decade would enter the Ice Age. I now call on the Chinese leadership publicly to avoid violence. It will not be the same under a brutal and repressive regime. Yet history came with another surprise. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The Berlin Wall collapsed. Eastern Europe abandoned communism. The Soviet Union fell. The International Communist Coalition on the verge of disintegration. In the eyes of the free world, the fall of communism was inevitable. But Deng Xiaoping saw something else. For him, the Soviet Union didn't fall apart because of the communist system. It fell apart because of foreign adversaries. Only person was different from them. He believed that China should change the communist system. That was Joseph. Only himself believed fundamentally wrong. The CCP was fundamentally wrong. The year was 2000. Deng's successor, Jiang Zemin, was setting off for his first official visit to the United States. This is his interview with CBS 60 Minutes, right before the trip. I'm convinced that this interview will be further promoting the friendship and the mutual understanding between our two peoples. You admire America. That's right. Jiang isn't just a successor of Deng, but also of his strategic principle, hiding your strength and biding your time. Be it the economy, technology, or international status, the Chinese regime once again needed the U.S. to give it a hand. During his visit, Jiang was as flattering as a communist could possibly be to America. But his smiles came with a warning. Behind America's back, Jiang fiercely attacked those who sought democratic reforms in China and fanned up anti-U.S. sentiment across the country. 
In a society where large-scale protests are heavily regulated even today, how were the protests against America so widespread and well-publicized? The sentiments became most prominent in the wake of a tragic event. September 11th, 2001. Yeah, the Trade Center's down. It's down. It's down. when the American people were grieving their loss. Some Chinese netizens, brainwashed by the party, cheered for America's suffering. So, is Jiang Zemin pro-America or anti-America? The documents we uncovered revealed one of the party's most closely guarded secrets on how Jiang came to power. In the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre, Deng, worried he would eventually pay for his killings, laid his eyes on Jiang as a successor. The reason? Jiang was among those who had ordered the troops to open fire. As the biggest political beneficiary of the massacre, Jiang pushed China to its darkest era of human rights. He also embodied the dual nature of Beijing's foreign policy to its fullest extent, appearing pro-American on the outside and anti-American on the inside. But America once again overlooked the CCP's ambition. I believe that the United States and China can accomplish a lot when we work together to fight terrorism. The same year, Jiang ratcheted up the budget to purchase Russian weapons. A 2021 report from the Congressional Research Service found that in 2001, Russian arms exports to China exceeded $2.5 billion. That accounts for half of all Russian arms exports. China became the world's largest arms importer. Why did Jiang put so much effort into developing the Chinese military? In a 2004 congressional hearing, University of Pennsylvania professor and China expert Arthur Waldron warned lawmakers. The new Chinese military is the only one being developed anywhere in the world today that is specifically configured to fight the United States of America. Jiang wasn't just using Chinese troops. He was building a global alliance against the United States, exporting advanced weapons to other authoritarian regimes and terrorist groups. In 2001, he established the Shanghai Cooperation Organization a regional alliance directly aimed to counter the U.S.-led NATO. China started exporting increasing amounts of missile technology to Iran. And the Iranians began trading that with the North Koreans. Then there was 
the direct export of missile technology to Pakistan, uh, enabling the Pakistanis to make a family of uh, solid fuel ballistic missiles from artillery rockets to intermediate range ballistic missiles. All of that technology is traded between the North Koreans, the uh, Pakistanis, and, and the Iranians. It's all Chinese technology. The Chinese regime's plan stretched even further. During Jiang's term, an online survey led by the Chinese military shocked the world. It began with Shi Haotian, the Chinese operational commander who directed the murder of protesters during the Tiananmen Massacre. Chi served as vice chairman of the CCP's Central Military Commission and defense minister. In 2004, after he had just left office, Chi commissioned Chinese media Sina to conduct an online survey. In it, one question went, if you were a soldier, would you open fire on women, children, and prisoners of war with the permission of your superiors? 34% of the respondents chose, I would shoot under any circumstances. Another 48.6% chose, I would shoot only if my life or the lives of my fellow soldiers were in danger. Only 3.8% would not shoot women, children, and prisoners of war under any circumstances. Why would the Chinese military conduct a survey like this? In an internal speech in 2005, Chi Tian gave the answer. In short, our online survey is to find out whether the people would rise against us if one day we decide to get our hands dirty and secretly clean up America. Will the people be more for or against it? Our basic judgment is that if the people are in favor of opening fire on women and children, they'll be in favor of cleaning up the United States. Due to overwhelming social pushback, however, the Communist Party quickly removed information about the survey from the internet. I had a friend. We were the same generation. And when I went back to China, we had dinner together. And she asked me, why you American always want to defeat us? I said, no, no such thing. America never tried to uh, destroy China. There's no such thing. She said, no, you are brainwashed by the American <laughs> government. So I just realized because we live in the different worlds, 